Welcome back to another edition of the Unofficial Guide Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill, Zylan Testa, and this was our second show for September. And today is a, a listener sent in request for us to discuss the history of Disney's villains, specifically uh, events in the parks related to villains. And I'd like to bring in our own podcast villain, one Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? <laughs> I'm fine, Len. Fine. This is an interesting topic because villains aren't something that I think that people uh, intuitively think of when it comes to entertainment in the theme parks, and yet they've proven to be remarkably popular characters. Oh, absolutely. And more to the point, it's an interesting time to be talking about the Disney villains. We, we're just a few weeks o- away from... Uh, when the Descendants, the Disney Channel original movie, debuted, and this film is the number one cable movie for 2015 right now. They That's had like super popular, si- yeah, 6.5 million people tuned in for its Friday night premiere, and then if you factor in everyone who DVR'd it, they had over uh, 10.5 million people watch this thing. And and more to the point, Disney doesn't view Descendants as as a one shot. In fact, you may recall Len when. You and I, are earlier this summer, were at the uh, Disney Consumer Products Holiday Showcase. Yep. There were Descended books, Descended dolls, Descended games, even Halloween costumes where you could dress up as Mal or Evie. Uh, Mal is Maleficent's daughter, and Evie is the, the daughter of the Evil Queen from Snow White. And to keep this running, I was, was talking with, with Kenny Ortega, the, the director of Descendants. Uh, Isn't he also the, didn't he also do uh, High School Musical? He did High School Musical, and I mean, he's done a number of things for Disney over the years. Right, and okay. what's interesting is just like High School Musical, they're already talking sequel. In fact, he's the one who, who said to me that, you know, the Descendants world was this really wonderful place to play in, and there were so many characters from Disney's animated films that we could draw upon, pull in. So there's so many stories we could tell. And so they're actually making efforts to keep this franchise alive. On September 18th, Disney Channel's going to roll out The Descendants Wicked World, which is this short-form animated series. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, Who's doing the animation? Same people that are doing the Mickey Mouse shorts? Uh, no, it's a, it's a different outfit. In fact, that they very much modeled the animation on the look of the young performers who appeared in, again, this Kenny Ortega film. So the notion is it's their likeness. In fact, they're voicing the characters. Oh, wow. And they expect some time in the next month or two to Disney finally officially greenlight the sequel with the hope that we'll... They'll be able to have it out. They'd like 2016, but it's more likely 2017. What's kind of ironic is that they're also talking, just as we started with the top of the show, of bringing at least two of these characters into the park, uh, Mal and Evie. Really? So keep an eye out, folks, on the Disney auditions page. They're going to be looking for young women in their mid to late teens to to play the daughter of Maleficent and the Evil Queen to just sort of keep them out there. And those of you who want autographs or photos taken with these characters, that's going to be an opportunity fairly soon. And they're, they're going to go in the parks. They're going to go in the parks. And in fact, what's kind of interesting is this comes on the heels of what happened last year where Disney had another Disney villain-inspired project, Maleficent, which made it three-quarters of a billion dollars worldwide, Len. So yeah, really? It did It did huge numbers. In fact, uh, Disney, back in June, hired Linda Wolverton, the woman who wrote the script for Maleficent, also wrote the script for uh, Beauty and the Beast, by the way. But she's writing a sequel, and there was Maleficent this... Maleficent 2, this time it's personal? What? Uh... Well, I, I'm not sure. You know, in fact, it's going to be kind of interesting, because Angelina Jolie isn't signed yet, so that's 
going to be something of a challenge. She made buku bucks off of the last film, and I would imagine... Or did she get points off of it? It's interesting you bring that up, because... Point, points later being on, a percentage of the, uh, of the gross, right? Yeah. Uh, later on in the show, we're going to talk a little bit about Hades. And in order to do that, we need to talk about Jack Nicholson. Was the voice, the guy they actually originally wanted to voice Hades, and Jack wanted real money. But we'll, we'll get that story in a bit. So Maleficent did well. I, I didn't know it did uh, $750 million, though. Jeez. Yeah, uh, actually, 760 So sequel's been put forward. And in fact, last year, they actually did a test of how guests would react if they brought the Angelina Jolie uh, version of Maleficent into the parks. They did a couple of different tiered things last year at Mickey's Not-So-Scary Halloween Party. One of them was a dessert party mm-hmm. of Bill and Team's event up at Cinderella's Royal Table in, in the castle. What they did to entertain the folks who were waiting in the lobby to go up and do this is they brought in various Disney villains. And these folks were kind of shocked to see here came Maleficent, only it wasn't the Maleficent who's always been in the park. It was one whose makeup and costume and whole demeanor was based on the Angelina Jolie take on the material. Ah, and how'd that go over? It was kind of intriguing. In fact, Disney was somewhat restrictive. They would allow people to come up, chat with her. There aren't a whole lot of photographs out there because Disney, Ah. I think, was, was kind of locking the look at that point. And this was kind of a test to say how people would react to a kinder, gentler mistress of all evil. That presents some problems, though, in the... Uh, because in the, in the movie, right, if you haven't seen the movie, in the movie, she's not evil. She's misunderstood. That's it, exactly. And face it, in, in this theme park, whether it's the, the show in front of the castle or that sort of thing, you know, Maleficent's a villain, you know, yeah. plain and simple. And that's how she's been sold to audiences at the park for forever and ever so it was a test you know we haven't seen her back since but again given that the sequel is is making its way through the system it'll it'll be kind of intriguing yeah that's that's a that's a complex narrative for a park character to Mm -hmm. to master remember a couple shows ago we talked about what it's like to be an in-park character and when you Mm -hmm. said you know you've got this list of here are the people that you know and here are the people that you don't know and there's this sort of uh, material that you've got to memorize but for Maleficent especially if they do the Angelina Jolie version that's going to be a really complex character I mean that's at that point you're not you're not even really a face character you're an actor at that point very much so wow very much so but at the same time you know the Disney's hit this issue before. I mean, you, you may recall back in 2013, Disney Consumer Products actually walked out this line of, it was actually called the Disney Villains Beauty Collection, and they, they took three of the Disney villains, or excuse me, four, uh, Corolla Deville, the Evil Queen from Snow White, Maleficent, and Ursula, mm-hmm. and used their looks and their color palette to, to do nail polish, hair accessories, eyelashes, and cosmetic bags. And, That's right. And as a parallel effort to this, they actually put out uh, a series of Disney villain designer dolls. What was kind of interesting is Disney got really hammered on in social media because they put an Ursula doll out there that was, again, a supermodel. So she was thin, this anorexic sea witch. And people was like, that's not what Ursula looks like. Circling back to... Can you do two Maleficents? And, you know, clearly in the eyes of a lot of people, there's only one look for Ursula. You know, there's only one way. When you get down to the Disney villains and how they are in the park and that sort of thing, Disney doesn't necessarily view the villains themselves as a franchise. Really? The the phrase that's used in-house is that they're a retail opportunity. Uh, Is that really? Do they call it product? Oh, my God. (laughs) 
I hate I hate marketing but speak. If you really drill down into it, as a viable franchise, the villains that actually existed before the Disney princesses. In fact, there was a, a Disney villain shop that, that opened at Disneyland back in June of 1991. It replaced the Briar Rose gifts there. And it, it did so well. It was, it was moving so much product per mm-hmm. square foot that the Imagineers who were just at that time sort of nailing down what they were going to do for Sunset Boulevard, for Disney MGM Studios, mm-hmm. they actually took one entire block of the Sunset Boulevard and made it into a dedicated villain shop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's still there. With, yeah. With, so with food, but yeah. There were three shops when it's opened that made up sort of this, this block. There was the Scary Apothecary, the Villains and Vogues, and Sweet Spells. Who would you think, Len, if you had to pick out of all the Disney villains that appear in the parks and the cruise lines and wherever... Who's the most popular villain? The most popular villain. Disney villain. <sighs> All right. So without being a little philosophical, is, is Jack Sparrow considered a villain? No, he's he's an anti-hero. Okay. Is, is Barbosa a villain? Anti-hero again, well. anti-hero. Two sides of the same coin. It's not Scar. Let me see. A villain, 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 villain. It, Gaston's a villain, right? Gaston's a villain. I'm going with Gaston. At least as far as the cruise line, and in fact, given the way he's used in the parks these days, it's actually Hades from Hercules. Really? Hades? Well, we'll think about it. Did you ever get on the Disney Magic or the Disney Wonder back when those those cruise lines launched in 98, 99? No, it's been uh, relatively recent for me. But Hades is, is part of the uh, is part of a show now on on a cruise line. That's the second show oh, that really? features Hades. Oh. The first one was, was called Hercules the Muse. Ickle, yes, as in <laughs> M-U-S-E. It was deliberately written loosely so that Hades, in much the same way that the genie in the yeah. Aladdin, a musical spectacular DCA, can sort of break character and talk about pop culture events that are going on. They allowed Hades, the, the performer who did Hades in the show, to do that. Where it got interesting is that, you know, the Disney Cruise Line decides to retire Hercules the Musical in 2008 to make room for Toy Story the Musical. But when they begin to survey passengers who are making the second, third, fourth voyage on, on, on the cruise line, they discover that people who'd been on the Magic and been on the Wonder were really missing Hades, that seeing this Hercules character on stage cutting up had been something, they've been a real highlight of their voyage. So the entertainment people just, all right, they want Hades and... It's villains tonight. That's what the new show. Is. You know, another reason, quite possibly, that this show was uh, Hercules the Musical was very popular with guests on the Wonder and the Magic was that well, especially that the Wonder was because this was where Jennifer Hudson made her professional debut. Really? Yeah, she was on. She played the role of Calliope, one of the muses, uh, for six months on the Wonder. In interviews later, she credited her win on American Idol, which you know was what launched this Academy Award winner's career. Mm-hmm. The training and the professional chops she got from acting in this Disney Cruise Line musical. That's so funny. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just it, it's kind of bizarre. One of the things that I like about Hades, and then you, you mentioned the same thing too about the genie of Aladdin, but mm-hmm. they're the they're the characters. They're allowed to say and do things that the heroes aren't allowed to do. Like mm-hmm. you, you could never see Mickey Mouse cracking a joke about Kim Kardashian, right? But no, no, but that's Hades, Hades can do it. In fact, it's so funny you say that because the whole, if you think about Hades, the whole, we dance, we kiss, we smooth, we carry on, and we go home happy, you know, what do you say, persona? Um, <laughs> yeah. 
everyone knows that version of the character and loves him. But but to be honest, that's not what Ron and John, Ron Clements and John Musker, the the, the two gentlemen who directed Little Mermaid and and Aladdin, were originally thinking when they were casting about for a villain. I mean, in the animated feature that they wanted to make based on, you know, the Greek myths and the legends of Hercules. Mm -hmm. Their first choice was Jack Nicholson. (sighs) All right. You know, it it would have been terrible or it would have been awesome, but there wouldn't have been a mediocre. No, absolutely. But but Nicholson was was at first was genuinely intrigued. In fact, Danny DeVito, who voiced uh, Philokides in Hercules, the, the Hercules trainer, was the guy who actually brokered the deal. They, you know, they mentioned sort of in passing, geez, we'd love to have Jack. And Danny had just directed Jack in the Jimmy Hoffa movie. It's like, well, let me call Jack. Yeah. And so Nicholson comes to the lot. You know, not only does he come to the lot, he brings his daughter Lorraine. In a Snow White costume. Oh, my God. All right. And so everyone's like, oh, my God, it's a sign. It's a sign. He really wants to do this. And so they show him the boards. They, they pitch him the character. He loves it. And then he says, okay, now let's talk money. I'm looking for something along the lines of what I got for doing the Joker, which I, I don't know if you've, you've ever heard of this deal. No. Len, but, no. Oh, Okay, I want Jack Nicholson's agent, because listen to the deal he got. To appear in the 1989 version of Batman alongside Michael Keaton, he got $6 million up front, okay? But then he got a 17.5% cut of all merchandising off of the movie. 17.5? 17.5, which, depending on who you talk to, you know, and if you're factoring worldwide grosses or domestic or whatever, that sort of thing. So I'll, anything that had the Batman logo on it that was tied to this 1989 Tim Burton film, he got 17.5% of. So depending on who you talk to, the numbers are he got $50 million, and again, in 1989 money, or possibly over $100 million. Holy um, cow. Yeah. So and, and now imagine you're Disney. <laughs> you know, and yeah. it's like you really want Jack Nicholson because it will help your movie worldwide, but it's just like – they couldn't even come close to matching what they Warner's had paid Nicholson up front. Well, I think Warner um, was probably thinking uh, that uh, merchandise was going to be an insubstantial part of the uh, the overall revenue. They were giving away seventeen point five percent of nothing. This is the same town where Fox, you know, when George Lucas was working on his deal with Fox for Star Wars, it's like. Uh, sure, take the toy money. Nobody ever makes any money off a of toy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> you know, what an idiot. So anyway, Nicholson passes. And so for a time, they bring in John Lithgow, and he voices Hades. And, but the problem is that for, for whatever reason, it's just not working. And well, so after six months... characters, yeah, no. Yeah, they just they let him go. The, the scuttlebutt at that time is... Lithgow just isn't funny. You know, just I don't know yeah, why. It is. You know, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Now, you have to understand that right after he, he loses this job, he gets hired to do Third Rock from the Sun. I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> which, which, again, to, to put just a little bit more of a sting on it, this was originally developed for ABC. They pass. Uh-uh. Uh, it goes to NBC, becomes this smash hit. And, and in the first year, Lithgow gets the award for best performance in a comedy or yeah. best lead in a comedy. 
comedies. Yeah. So again, you know, he can't be funny. We don't want him in our movie. Not a good judge of Lithgow's talent anyway. Okay, all right. So now finally they bring in James Wood. And Wood is, is also having just trouble getting his arms around the characters. He can't understand what they're going for. And eventually what Ron and John sort of pull him aside and go, you know... We weren't entirely fans of Jeffrey Katzenberg, the, the the former head of Walt Disney Studios, who's since gone on to create DreamWorks Animation, and this is kind of a riff on Jeffrey. In fact, to be honest, if you draw, if if you draw glasses on Hades' face, it then becomes really obvious who this you know who this character was modeled after. Really, and as soon as Woods hears, it's like, oh, got it, and and that's. <laughs> That's the character we now all love. That's it's this really, you know, it's Jeffrey Katzenberg. It's 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 the head of the studio. And just to be fair here, he's not the first Disney executive that wound up being caricatured as a Disney villain. If you want to do something fun sometime, Len, first find yourself a photo of Radigan, the suave but sinister rodent from Walt Disney's 1985 animated feature, uh, The Great Mouse Detective. Then find a picture of Ron Miller, who was the the president and CEO of Disney right up until Michael Eisner came on board. And if you you line up the two characters, you then see the broad shoulders, the square head, the buttered toast hair that's combed down the middle, even the five o'clock shadow. This is Ron Miller, a guy who wasn't necessarily very kind to people who worked in animation, who got back at him without him realizing it. By the way, that was another character that used to walk around the park. (laughs) I'm doing doing this side by side right now. Oh, that's evil. Yeah. So. Oh my God, that's funny! The, All right. So that, the two photos that I happen to look at online, they both have uh, Ron Miller looking uh, to the left, so it's easier to tell. Oh my God, that's. And I just saw him early this this uh, summer at, at the when they were opening the Disney and Dolly exhibit, the Walt Disney Family Museum. He, he's a little thinner and a little older, but you know you can still see you know that there's still that USC football player in him. Um, oh, oh, before I forget, I, and since we're, we're talking about real-life Disney villains, I was at Mark and Alice Davis's house uh, in the early 90s, and it was 5 o'clock, and at 5 o'clock, they, these two stop whatever they're doing and break out the world's strongest cocktails. Small world got done. Gin. <laughs> oh, my God, yeah. Um, yeah, and there's nothing quite as humiliating as having two 70-year-olds drink you under the table. I mean, I had one... <laughs> Of these Manhattans and say, "Tell me a story," you know, and and they're fine. But it, over drinks, they proceed. We, we get talking about Mark's work, and he mentions that you know, speaking of cocktails, that Cruella de Vil is actually based on the wife of one of their co-workers at Disney. That evidently there was this staff cocktail party gets at one point, and this wife came in and made this huge scene, and, and Mark, who was just beginning working on Cruella and couldn't quite get a handle on her, it's like, ha, ah, I know how she moves. I know how she acts now. And <laughs> Exactly. Maybe if the scales had been tipped the other way, if, if I'd been able to drink Mark under the table, he would have revealed things. But he was very circumspect. He, you know, he never revealed who this woman was. Yeah. Alice is still with us, though. And, and in fact, I'm kind of hoping that I get to see her again this fall. And maybe then I can finally get her to give up the name of whoever this was that, you know, inspired Corolla Deville. Getting back to, to Hades now, and particularly how this character is used in the parks. A lot of you, I'm sure, remember what Disney did for the year of 2013, the limited uh, time magic idea. 
as they began to suss out events they were going to do for, you know, over the course of that year, Mark Renfro, who's a show director and writer for the Walt Disney World Resort, he told me in an interview about how for almost a decade they'd been trying to get a park-wide Halloween-themed event going at Disney Hollywood Studios uh, that was going to be built around the Disney villains. And the last time they seriously talked about this project, one of the ideas that was centermost to it was this thing called Hades Hangout, which was supposed to be this, this combination underworld environment exclusive New York nightclub where it could serve as sort of the hub of this villain celebration. Unfortunately, for a variety of reasons, whenever this idea would come up for Disney's Hollywood Studios, and it came up a lot, Len, they just nix it, you know. And so Hades Hangout got filed away until the fall of 2012, when suddenly Limited Tide Magic is is pushing forward, and people uh, who work in entertainment are like, wow, that'd be cool, Could, you know, that'd be perfect for this. And well, let's look at dates. And so they pulled the calendar for 2013, and mm-hmm. sure enough, in September there's a Friday the 13th, and for them this is ideal because it's close enough to Halloween that you can sort of, you know, the villains event makes sense, but at the same time it's not. Not so close to Halloween that you're not going to cut into sales or, or, you know, for Mickey's not so scary. You know, they go forward with the thing. But Mark really wants to do something special. You know, he doesn't want to trot out the same villains over and over and over again. So he digs down deep. And more to the point, during this Hades hangout show that they do in the center of the park, he brings 13 villains on stage that he's confident that people haven't seen in a while. So you get people like... The bowler hat guy from Meet the Robinsons. You get Shan Yu from Mulan. You even get Oogie Boogie from Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas, which was a costume. They actually had to fly out from California because they only had one of them. It was at the Disneyland Resort. Given the thousands of people who lined up that night to get their pictures taken with these characters, Renfro was on to something. So, which brings us now, you know, here we are, September 2015. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, this show is supposed to go up on iTunes on the 15th of their about Mm-hmm. Okay, this is the day that the the brand new edition of Mickey's Not-So-Scary Halloween Party starts. Oh. And this time around, again, reaching down into the pile, trying to pull uh, villains that haven't been used before, they're doing a brand new show for the seasonal event, the Hocus Pocus Villains Spectacular. And this is this is a castle show going to replace the standard one that's been done in the forecourt for a bunch of years now. It's going to be built around the Sanderson sisters, the, those witch characters from 1993's Walt Disney Pictures release Hocus Pocus. Now, to give you some idea of how circular show business is, Len, mm-hmm. Hocus Pocus and Descendants were directed by the exact same guy, uh, Kenny Ortega. And then to, to really put a, a weird touch on it, both of these these projects uh, feature Kathy Najimy. Kathy Najimy in Hocus Pocus played Mary Sanderson, the kind of heavy, dim-witted witch character, while in Descendants, she actually plays Evie's mom. In this case, Evie's mom is the evil queen from Snow White. It all sort of curves back on itself, but Anyway, the, the, the notion of this show, or at least based on the press release that Disney released back in May, the Sanderson sisters can only return to the mortal realm for one night during the Halloween season, So, which, which is why Winifred, Mary, and Sarah fire up the cauldron in front of Cinderella Castle and see how many cameos by classic Disney villains they can conjure up. <laughs> I have to caution you folks, this was the lineup announced in May. It's subject to change. 
We should see Dr. Facilier from yeah, uh, Princess of the Frog. Yeah. And we should be seeing Maleficent. But again, now comes the question, like we said at the top of the show, is this Maleficent that we know from the 59 film, or is this the Maleficent that we know from last year's live-action movie? You know, the one that's modeled after the Angelina Jolie character and the one that was appearing in the lobby of Cinderella's Royal Table. The Angelina Jolie one is so much more interesting. They've got to, they've got to do that, so... Mm-hmm. We're just going to have to wait to find out. So those of you folks, those of you listeners, are actually going to the show... We'd love your feedback on what you thought of, of this particular element of the, the Mickey's Not-So-Scary. More to the point, if you want more Disney villain stories, God, I've got them, and we can do them come October, which is that much closer to Halloween. Halloween so, month. Yeah, it's true. Halloween month. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, Jim, this is great. Uh, great, great show on the, uh, on the villains. Well, we aims to please. <laughs> All right. You've been listening to the Unofficial Guide at Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. Please go on to iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you would like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show. Take care, guys.